and welcome to the JNMP podcast. I'm Elizabeth Hyden. In this first episode for 2016, we'll be looking at re-evaluating the treatment of acute optic neuritis. I'm very pleased to be joined today by Professor Elliot Froman, Professor of Neurology, Neurotherapeutics and Ophthalmology, and Director of the Multiple Sclerosis and Neuroimmunology Program at the University of Texas. Welcome, Elliot. Thank you very much for joining me today. Well, thanks so much, Elizabeth, for having me. First of all, I wondered whether, for the benefit of myself and our listeners, um, could you briefly explain what optic neuritis is and what is the link between optic neuritis and multiple sclerosis? Well, Elizabeth, this is very, very important. Uh, Optic neuritis is so key with respect to MS in particular because it's uh, one of the most common exacerbations or attacks of the immune system that occurs in the central nervous system of patients who have multiple sclerosis or occurs as a first episode of patients that are later destined to be diagnosed with MS. But to define it, optic neuritis is an example of a syndrome where immune cells in circulation are actually abnormally moving or trafficking from the blood into specific compartments of the central nervous system. And it's very important at the very outset to really declare the fact that the eye is the front of the brain and the retina is part of the central nervous system. So what we see in optic neuritis is an increased level of entry of what we call the circulating mononuclear cells or the lymphocytes, B cells, T cells, and macrophages that are moving from the blood across the vessels, typically post-capillary veins, and then into the target tissue of this autoimmune attack. It just happens to be that in optic neuritis, the targeting is against the optic nerve itself, containing the 1 million or 1,200,000 axons that are important for what the visual system does. But also, this inflammatory attack can also occur in the retina itself. It's not just necessarily the optic nerve, but a variation of optic neuritis is an attack that occurs with an exuberance of inflammatory cells within the retina itself. Um, You mentioned that there are, um, in in the paper, it comprehensively outlines um, the technologies that are now available to clinicians. Um, ones in imaging and electrophysiology, um, and the ones that have significantly advanced the field, uh, particularly in the ability to measure both structural and functional changes in acute optic neuritis. Could you possibly tell us a little bit more about that, um, perhaps by giving us an example of one of these new technologies that are available? Sure, I'd love to. Uh, I would say, first and foremost, it's important to recognize that While any area of the central nervous system can be a target of multiple sclerosis, it probably wouldn't surprise you, Elizabeth, to know that if someone wakes up in the morning or during the day, there's an attack that has been initiated against the visual system, this certainly will catch the attention uh, of the recipient or the affected patient. And I bring that up because it's very common for people to have fleeting symptoms in other systems of the nervous system, such as experiencing some numbness or tingling, where patients will question uh, the veracity of the symptom, what's causing it, and what they should do about it. When somebody's vision is affected, however, uh, it's very common 
for those individuals to seek out medical attention uh, quite early, which gives us an amazing opportunity to really see this syndrome blossoming from its inception. What I want to emphasize is that traditionally we have examined the visual system in our patients, of course, by hearing from them how their own exam or their visual function has changed. But you know, over the years, we have been able to really refine some very simple techniques at the bedside, one of which is testing patients for black and white or low contrast letter acuity. Turns out that uh, one of my colleagues, Laura Balser, who is at New York University and previously at the University of Pennsylvania, beautifully has validated the relationship between vision in multiple sclerosis and the effect of MS on vision by looking not just at black and white vision or black on white cards and using both eyes at the same time. Of course, Elizabeth, most of us view the visual world with two eyes at any given time. Two eyes are better than one and we get fusion of images. We get stereoscopic imaging. But if you actually test one eye at a time individually and you would subject the eye to the black on white charts, but then look at the low contrast charts, it turns out the low contrast acuity down to about let's say 2.5 percent acuity this is a very easy reproducible and very sensitive measure of assessing vision in the clinic what's become extraordinary is that this very simple technique which is based by the way on five letters in a line 14 lines on the chart so 70 possible it turns out that as people with MS either have acute optic neuritis if they've lost function, or in the case of chronic optic neuropathy, which also occurs in MS, where there are changes without an acute event, we can use these low contrast letter charts to actually track the course of how the visual system is being affected. Now, what's important about that is that patient function, if you think about it, is a combination of the architecture of the retina, is it normal or not? but also superimposing upon that the function of the visual system. We've developed over the years some new techniques, one of which is called optical coherence tomography, or OCT, which allows us within seconds to reproduce very high resolution images of all of the layers of the retina with such fine resolution that we have learned that as vision decrements in multiple sclerosis, and people, for example, have a harder time seeing low contrast acuity. There is a significant reduction in the acuity that corresponds to significant and well-defined changes in the thickness measures that we derive from the technology optical coherence tomography. Now, for example, we know that the various layers of the retina have different cell types, but most importantly, the final pathway for vision or for regulating pupil light reflexes, or sending vision to the hypothalamus, the part of the brain that tells us when it's day and when it's night, uh, when ovulation should occur, uh, when we're full from eating or when we have hunger, regulating our thermoregulation. The function of the visual system across those areas is dependent upon the health and the wellness, the integrity of the retinal ganglion cell neuron primary nerve cell that ultimately will send information through the axons, their axons, in the back of the eye in what we call the optic nerve. And we do know that the final path in the retina 
involves the movement of these axons in a certain layer called the retinal nerve fiber layer. In fact, if we miniaturized you and put you through the pupil, through the vitreous fluid of the eye, you would arrive eventually at that first layer of the retina, which is the retinal nerve fiber layer. It contains the axons that become the optic nerve behind the eye. And this has been one of the primary areas we have studied over the last 10 years to show that as vision decrements, so goes a corresponding reduction in the thickness of the retinal nerve fiber layer. Now, why do we care about that? Because that's where the axons are that become the optic nerve. We have learned that that's an important layer. There's another layer called the ganglion cell layer, inner plexiform layer. The ganglion cell layer actually has those neurons that give rise to the axons that become the optic nerve. There are different reasons for measuring these layers, but one of the reasons to assess the ganglion cell layer in our plexiform layer is because it's deeper and more protected and it is less affected by water and edema that can falsely give the impression during optic neuritis that the retinal nerve fiber layer is fatter and thicker. It's okay, when in reality, that's edema and swelling. One of the challenges has been, when should we do OCT in somebody with optic neuritis when we no longer see the effect of edema? This deeper layer, the GCL-IPL, is not affected by water, and it's abil our ability to bracket and measure that layer is so high precision that it has solved one of the fundamental problems, which is the change in architecture, which corresponds to a change in vision. Um, you've touched on it then just, just briefly, but I wonder if we can expand on it a little bit. Um, the notion that, of course, the eye is a sort of a viable window to the central nervous system. Um, what is it about acute optic neuritis that provides such a unique clinical model and, and, and why is that? It was a very interesting part of the paper, I thought, and I just wondered if you could just discuss that a little bit more. Yeah, no, I'd love to. And most people who have MS, and certainly those of us who care for MS patients, would likely agree that the most conspicuous aspect of having this disease over the years has been characterized by these unwelcomed and unpredictable attacks or exacerbations that correspond to the abnormal and exuberant entry of inflammatory cells, some of which are autoimmune, into the central nervous system that produce some corresponding clinical syndrome. It's important to recognize that while optic neuritis would get your attention if you were experiencing it today, we realize that a lot of the activity that occurs in MS is occurring silently or subclinically, including disease activity in the visual system. One of the reasons why optic neuritis is such a unique syndrome by which we can develop models to understand the mechanisms of injury and disease, but also by which we can look at this question, which is, if acute inflammation is occurring that compromises vision, we also know acute inflammation can affect the spinal cord and render people weaker or non-ambulatory. We can have effects in the brainstem where people can't control their eye movements or bladder functioning. The ability to have a model like the eye and optic neuritis that occurs in it within the context of MS gives us a very unique opportunity. And here's what it is. By the time somebody develops visual problems from acute inflammation within the anterior visual system, the optic nerve, the retina, or both, we now know that about three quarters of patients 
within three to six months from the onset of their visual complaints will lose about 10 to 40 microns of thickness. Now, I want you to think about this. By the time you're 10 or 15, the thickness of your nerve fiber layer in the retina is round about 100 microns. And if you lived life and never had MS or optic neuritis, you would probably, over the course of aging, lose about 10 microns from 100 to 90, given that you never develop glaucoma, macular degeneration, or MS. But it turns out that in multiple sclerosis, three-quarters of patients will lose between 10 and 40% of those optic nerve axons within three to six months. The reason why that is so conspicuous and very enticing is that this is a very accelerated model of axonal damage and degeneration, which then opens up this incredibly powerful window of opportunity, which says this, Elizabeth, if you have a drug that you believe is anti-inflammatory, is neuroprotective, has the ability to reduce the number of axons that are damaged and degenerate, or how about, Elizabeth, if you had a stem cell therapy, which is purported to actually promote the growth of new axons or provides the ability to myelinate axons which have lost their insulation or myelin. This model, which plays itself out, optic neuritis, in only three to six months, gives us this unparalleled opportunity to, in a very accelerated way, look at a smaller number of patients, uh, costing less money to ascertain the change, the primary assessment in terms of function, structure by OCT, optical coherence tomography, but now also the advent of some very sophisticated neurophysiologic techniques which allow us to look at the physiology of the retina and the optic nerve give us this very unique opportunity to both follow the course of the disease, study its mechanisms, but also to detect and monitor neurotherapeutic effects that might be preventative, that might be neuroprotective, that might be performance enhancing, and guess what? That might even be restorative in terms of the ability to restore capabilities that have been lost. One point I would like to make for the listeners, many of which may know this, but I think it's worth underscoring. In general, there's no myelin in the retina. The retina is a beautiful preparation of brain tissue with supporting cells, glia, and with neurons and axons. But it turns out the axons do not achieve, the optic nerve axons do not achieve their myelin until they penetrate the back of the eye at a particular place called the lamina cribosa. And it's behind that particular veil or that anatomic demarcation, which is where the oligodendrocytes apply myelin to those axons. And it probably wouldn't surprise you to know that myelin is mostly fat. It's not a conductor. It's an insulator. But myelin is placed on axons in limited stretches, limited segments of myelin internodes that are punctuated by areas of no myelin. Those areas without myelin are the nodes of Ranvier, and that's where electrical propagation occurs on the nerve. One of the things we know 
is that axons in the retina that don't have myelin are conducting electricity quite slowly all the way down the length of the axon. But once the message crosses the lamina cribosa into a part of the axon which now is developed with myelin internodes and gaps or nodes of Ranvier, the conduction speeds up considerably in what we call saltatory conduction. We do know that optic neuritis can affect and deplete the myelin behind the eye and thereby slow down those signals. We really believe that the combination of structural and functional assessments of the visual system will become a way for us to detect protection, or as in the case of a particular drug called anti-lingo, a drug that removes lingo from undeveloped oligodendrocytes, which allows them to develop into adult process-bearing myelinating cells, we believe that optic neuritis is an ideal model to demonstrate whether that antibody against lingo, lingo being a factor that prevents the development of myelinating cells, this is a prime example on using the eye as a window into the brain for the identification of neurotherapeutics that work or we identify evidence to suggest that it doesn't work. Current evidence presented at Ectrums last year in Barcelona suggests that anti-lingo, in fact, has an effect that would be considered to be suggestive of myelin repair because what the investigators saw was an improvement in the velocity of the axons behind the eye, which is where myelination takes place. Well, I think that's um, sort of a really fantastic place to actually wrap things up, Elliot. I mean, it's really interesting to hear, especially at the end, with um, the notion of anti-lingo treatment, um, if I've understood that correctly, and, and the implications that has for, for patients and, and sort of future clinical care. Um, thank you very much for joining us today. I think that's been a really interesting and, and sort of helpful discussion. Thanks very much, and uh, I really hope that the listeners uh, garner some deeper insight in terms of why we're so excited about the prospect of using the eye as a window into the brain. And as a last point, I would say, not just for MS, for MS specifically, but we now believe for neurodegenerative disorders in general, that even though Alzheimer's and Parkinson's don't have optic neuritis, we do know that the retina is changing slowly and gradually in the vast majority of neurodegenerative disorders. Well, thank you very much, Elliot. That was um, Professor Elliot Froman for the JNMP podcast.